This is the Mid-Range Theory Podcast with your hosts, Tommy D and Ian Levy. On this episode, BasketballInsiders.com's Moke Hamilton joins us to talk about what if Carmelo Anthony was drafted by the Pistons and what to expect from the new CBA. All right, so August 7th, 1997, Otis Thorpe is traded by the Pistons to the Vancouver Grizzlies for a a future first-round pick, which is something that we talk about a lot, about comparing value. That future first-round pick ultimately was in 2003, and the Pistons, coming off a 50-win season and and getting blown out in the playoffs uh, by the Nets, ends up making a decision between Darko Milicic and Carmelo Anthony. Larry Brown and the Pistons select Darko Milicic, Moe Hamilton. It's amazing how those things can alter and, and recreate players' careers uh, in, in their own right. But we should probably try to talk a little bit about what if it were different, what, what Carmelo Anthony's career what would it have been if he had been selected number two overall by the Pistons yeah that's that's that's, a, that's definitely a great talking point Tommy and um, I'm very happy to be joining you here man you know it's been been a while since we caught up with each other at least on the air always know? a pleasure so, so yeah so definitely thanks a lot for having me on you know it's very interesting man I was I was tweeting about it earlier this week and um, where it, what it kind of brought me to Tommy is I think that for the most part the, the general public doesn't understand how important it is for a player to be put in a good environment in his formative years. You know, so you think about a guy like Rajon Rondo, for example. Does Rondo end up being the championship caliber point guard he was with the Boston Celtics if he doesn't find himself being surrounded by guys like Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and Doc Rivers, you know? And you think about a guy like DeMarcus Cousins, right? DeMarcus has all the talent in the world, but there's really no support system for him in Sacramento. And even though he's putting up numbers, he still struggles with issues related to his maturity, right? And that seems to be costing his team. So for me now, I look at Kobe and I look at the situation that Kobe Bryant found himself in in Los Angeles and being a part of a great organization and then having some some great veteran guys there to kind of lead him and show him the way and then to have Phil Jackson. You know, I just kind of wonder if Kobe would have actually ended up being one of the best players ever if he did stick in Charlotte. And that led me to wondering what life would have been like for Carmelo had he ended up going to Detroit. You know, who knows who knows how he and Larry Brown would have gotten along, you know, in, in, in his his rookie year, I suppose. But you gotta figure that if Melo goes there with Chauncey Billups and Richard Hamilton and Rasheed Wallace and Larry Brown and such a great support system for a young player that things would have been totally different for both he, he, for him personally and for the franchise as a whole. So much to chew on, and I love all of it, especially when it comes down to LeBron and Kobe. And, and I think a lot of people, we'll get back to Melo in one second, a lot of people always kind of have this LeBron-Kobe battle when Kobe really was the guy who started what LeBron has continued, right? So... Jordan never worried about where he was drafted. Kobe made sure he was going to get drafted by the Lakers or the Knicks, you know, a, a, a big market team. 
You know, he tried to disrupt the process. He manipulated the process, let's be fair. And that's why he ended up being traded for, uh, or his rights were traded for, for uh, Vladi Divac in a deal that the Lakers needed to make uh, at a time where their franchise was a disaster. So, so that in and of itself it was a thing. The Rondo thing is also very interesting as well. They make the, the Garnett trade. Uh, Rondo is there. The Knicks passed on Rondo as well. Um, he falls into this situation where all he has to do is kind of get everybody involved and be the Doc Rivers on the floor. He's able to take that message and did, and did so. It, it's so well taken because as you go back to what Detroit was thinking about at that point, at that moment, they didn't want to disrupt what they had. Exactly, right. And so you take a guy who you're going to quote-unquote Euro stash, but you're not stashing. You're, going to, you're basically going to stash him on the bench, and everybody's going to say, okay, cool, Like, why is this guy not playing? Well, he's not playing because um, this team is very successful. They're winning in the you know, 50s. They won a championship that year, remember? And, of course. And that's now, I mean, I, yeah, of course, man. That was that was the thing. It was like, oh my goodness, you know, these guys are already so good, and now they have the number two pick. You know, it's crazy. Or I should think they're so good with the number two pick, who's not even playing. Right. You know what I mean? And and so so development is not really a thing there when you have this veteran minded. And Larry Brown is very similar along those lines with Jeff Van Gundy's. Larry Brown is the difference between. Pat Riley and Jeff Van Gundy. And what I mean by that is when a, when a guy gets knocked as being a coach, you know, you, you take that next step, which is Phil Jackson is trying to do right now, which Riley has done so amazingly well. You have to combine not only coaching and teaching, but also evaluating and developing. And a lot of those coaches, because of the pressure of their contract, a la Van Gundy, a la Larry Brown, they don't they don't have that ability to develop because really they just don't uh, to develop players just because they don't really have the time. Jeff Van Gundy was notorious for not playing young players. He didn't want draft picks. He wanted to trade them all the way. Everybody loves Jeff Van Gundy from 99, but they traded all of their picks because Jeff Van Gundy had an affinity for veteran players in a similar way that Larry Brown did. Well, let me, let me just jump in real quick there, Tommy. I mean, first of all, you're right. And it's it's just amazing. So Ernie Grunfeld, obviously the, the the lead man for the Knicks at that time. Part of what destroyed the relationship between Van Gundy and Grunfeld was the Marcus Camby trade. Yes, I mean Jeff Van Gundy was absolutely livid about that. He was not happy about it, and Grunfeld, being a bit of a prophet, was like, "Hey, I think this guy is exactly what we need on this team. I think that he can help us win win the conference and get to the championship." And lo and behold, obviously the Knicks didn't win, but that's exactly what happened. But no, you're right. Van Gundy feels that way, and Larry Brown felt that way too, which is why I think it's it's interesting to to kind of wonder what would have happened with he and Carmelo. So the and. Both North Carolina guys, right? He and George Carl. So, so Carmelo goes to Denver right off the bat. And, and, and this is, I think, at the core of why I get, and you know this, and hearing you know, the, the background stuff about you know, may, maybe me being a bit of a homer, which is um, you know, maybe not 100% the, the case. I'm, I'm defensive of people who kind of try to create narrative. As you know, we go back a long way. Carmelo comes into the NBA the, the, the Nuggets were a 7-65 and 65 team, right? Jeff Bedzilic was their coach. Uh, they, they, they were going in the wrong direction. This was after they hired Mike D'Antoni, by the way. 
They had to replace Dan Tony with Dan Issel, the, the journeyman coach, <laughs> the career NBA lifer, right? The recycled guy. They bring Bazilic in. This goes back a ways, but point being, Carmelo comes in, and all he does is take a 17-win team. And, and we're talking about this metrics age where everybody's talking, you know, uh, hyper, hyper metrics and numbers. They went, They won 43 games the next year, and they won 40 and then 50 games during Carmelo's run under George Carl uh, in that system, in that high post kind of isolation offense. So he landed in the right spot to be developed, but then what was, what's most fascinating for me, and this takes me back to the Kobe-LeBron stuff, right? Because we can also say that Melo manipulated his way to New York, and that we would both agree with that because we, we lived that process. But And he did it the right way, in my opinion. But to me, now you have a guy who was developed, nurtured, given the keys to the, to, to, to the, the, the franchise, and all of a sudden the franchise stopped paying. Literally. They traded Camby, who we mentioned before, who was on the Nuggets. They traded him for two second-round picks at a time where they were on the cusp of battling Kobe. And I remember talking to a Knicks executive after they made the, 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 the mellow trade about this. And I said, why did you guys trade Camby for two second rounders? And he looked at me dead in the face and said, money. The owner just wanted to dump the salary. Money. It was a money deal. So Mello wasn't given the resources. So, so now you have a, a, a player who was developed into a budding borderline superstar that didn't have the resources behind him. Very fascinating. Denver was a good, a good spot for him. I don't think Detroit would have been the same way. Yeah, well, Detroit, Detroit would have been a whole other situation altogether. I mean, the only thing I'll say about about Denver is, you know, they had they had some long money on that team already, you know, and can be. I mean, I'm going back a long ways. You know, it's like Canby was really good for that team, but if you're if you're Stan Kroenke and you know that you're going to have to pay Carmelo out the wazoo once he becomes eligible for an extension. Well, you know what? You might you might want to cut some costs. And traditionally, we see, I mean, not every NBA owner is Dan Gilbert or Jim Dolan. You know, and people can say whatever they want about about Dolan, and they can say whatever they want about, about the Knicks, and they can say whatever they want about Dan Gilbert. But, I mean, you look at the Heat, right? I mean, the Heat in, in, in the midst of... Sure. Yeah, in, in the midst in the midst of getting to the finals for consecutive years, these guys decide they want to cut costs. You know, like they traded they traded some key contributors away from their team for peanuts. Mike Miller, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if they amnesty Miller or if they if they cut him or what the deal was, but he wasn't a team anymore. Joel Anthony wasn't a team anymore. You know, and they replaced those guys for cheaper parts. So you see owners tend to do that kind of thing all the time. Now, if if Carmelo does go to Detroit, though, following the same line of thought there, I don't know what would have happened with Tayshawn Prince. And, and Tayshawn Prince is a big, big, big part of this. Because even though Larry Brown wasn't a huge fan of Great point. players, he believed in Tayshawn Prince. And what we saw from Tayshawn very, very early was the makings of a magnificent pro. And obviously now, you know, 15 years later, you know, 12 years later, whatever it is, looking back on it, when you compare Tayshaun Prince to Carmelo Anthony, it sounds it sounds idiotic. It sounds moronic. But at that time, that was a big, big part of it was the, the Pistons felt like they had something that was working. And Tayshaun Prince, who was a very young player in his own right, appeared to be destined for greatness. So I understand. 
I understand them not wanting to to disrupt it, but now that we know what Carmelo became, it's just interesting to to think of what could have been had he had he landed in Detroit and. and had he landed in Detroit, which is what many people, including Carmel and LeBron James, both thought was going to happen. We should probably point that out, too. It's all about positioning, right? And I agree with the Tayshawn Prince stuff. He he was, if they could have drafted him, or if they could have acquired him, you know, which they did before, um, but if they could have, they, he was the player that they thought was the guy who was going to get them over the top, and he did. He was He was that impactful, um, a three-point defender, not necessarily a three-point maker, um, but he, he was that good, and he played in the system. They had a really nice thing for a very short period of time. It's about long money. This is short money, right? This is just, this is just for you know trying to win uh, for your veterans, right? Ben Wallace, Rasheed Wallace, Chauncey, etc. And, and that was that whole dynamic. And Detroit is an incredible city. They're a great basketball town. They, they really love their hoops, and they obviously go back to, to, to the days of Isaiah and the, and the bad boys. Does it, does it make, does it hurt Mello's ultimate legacy that he wasn't taken second, I think is my thought, right? In any other draft, he's first, right? The year before or the year after, if you're looking top to bottom of all the players that have been drafted in the last 15 years, right? He, well, let's not say 15 years. Let's just say for those three years, right? Because he's not going to go back. If if you went back to school for another year and came out as a sophomore uh, in 04, you know, is he the, the, the hands down no brainer number one overall? I mean, the answer to that has to be yes. Has to be. Hmm. That's that's a great thought, Tommy. So 2004 would have been Dwight Howard number one, right? And then Emeka Okafor number two. Those guys were 2000. Yeah, those guys were 2004. Correct. Uh, that's that's a great thought, man. I I definitely think that he. We'll put it this way: when Dwight was taken number one overall, the, everyone and everyone and their mama was basically like the Orlando Magic better know what they're doing. Because to pass on a Mecca Okafor at number one for a high school kid, that thought was ridiculous. But if Okafor, but if Melo stays in at Syracuse, UConn is UConn better than Melo? My point is, I, okay, we can we could definitely have a, an, an all day argument at that moment in time, Melo versus Dwight. So so. It's more of a support to Mello, and I think my thought, again, is, and I'll, I'll let you continue what you were saying, but my thought is, does it crush Mello that he went third behind Darko? Like, is, will it hurt his legacy that he was drafted third overall? You're talking about LeBron, Dwight, Mello in two different drafts. Like, to me, I, I just... Um, I feel like because he wasn't the number one overall and he wasn't the number two overall... Uh, it sort of hurts how the league has perceived him, um, but I could be wrong about that. Oh no, I, I disagree wholeheartedly, Tom. I, I I disagree wholeheartedly, and and the main reason why I mean, like, do people do people really care? I mean, if you're number one overall, then a lot of expectations come with that, right? So there's a big difference in in talent drop off from number one to number two in a great many drafts, right? You look at 2008 where Derrick Rose went number one overall. Number two was Michael Beasley. 
you know? Um, so in that regard, I think coming in number one, there's a tremendous amount of expectations thrust on you. But I mean, that's really only relevant for the first year or two of a guy's career. By the third year, we know who he is. We know what he can do. And no one, no one even really remembers where guys were picked if they weren't number one. So case in point, I mean, look at Kobe, right? Look at look at Damian Lillard. Look at you know, um, I mean, look at Porzingis. You know, uh, there are tons and tons of guys that were. Look at Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade is probably the perfect example. What was what was Wade taking? Number was he number six back in 03? I want to say five or six. Yeah, 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 six. Because I, I think Bosch went. Or well, Melo was third. I think Bosch went fourth. Bosch fourth. Uh, Wade, uh, Wade five. Uh, yeah. Melo okay, third. Yeah. Melo Bosch Wade. I think. Oh, yeah, something something like that. But the point is, I mean, Dwayne Wade. You know, is what is what is Wade? One of the top, I don't know, three top five shooting guards to ever play the game. Oh, someone who's easily someone who's. Yeah, someone who's universally regarded as one of the all-time greats. No one even remembers where he was drafted. So I don't, I don't think where you get picked really does anything negative to your legacy. In fact, I think, I think it would go the other way around. Where you know, you look at a guy like a Paul Millsap or a Draymond Green. You know, the reason why we value these guys as highly as as we do is because, like, oh my goodness, this guy was taken in the second round. You know, how did so many teams miss on him? So, so in that regard, I think I think it could even go the opposite way. You know, I think being taken later can actually can actually help a guy's legacy in many cases. Which is such a great which is such a great point, and and the reason why teams quote unquote miss on players is I mean, there's a million. Number one is probably um, fit, which we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Melo probably is the best example. Number two is uh, relationship, agent relationship with franchise. You know, I don't want to. Oh, yeah. I don't want to deal with this guy or his guy's agent. Uh, and and number th- or, or, or we're or we're not even going to go work out for that team because I don't want you to go there. Which is the, which which really was started by Kobe, right? And I think it's amazing to me. You know, as you go back and look, and I, and I've become a Kobe supporter because of the shade that LeBron fans throw at him. I'm like, this guy, Kobe, for, for what's on the, on the floor specifically, right? You, you got to be able to separate on the court, off the court, right? On the court, Kobe was uh, very much the, the most competitive player, maybe aside from LeBron, maybe that we've seen since Michael, right? At least that's what, that's what he tried to perceive, and maybe that's why people don't like him. Great player. Off the court, manipulator. And, and that's, maybe that rubs people the wrong way. After the fact, you look at it and you're like, you know, he was able to craft his career and climb the ladder and do all those things because he was smart enough to recognize that. And I, I feel the same way about LeBron, but in comparing him, them both to Michael, Michael was, that's why Michael always gets the edge for me because he didn't need to do that. He didn't need to do that. And that's, this is what, I always feel like the greatness and the legacy and who's first and foremost is so, um, it impacts me in so many ways because I've seen all three of them, as you have. And it's like, all right, cool, you know, manipulating it is, um, manipulating the system is smart if you can get it done, um, but, you know, Michael didn't need to do that. 
that's 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 such an interesting point and it's not even ever it's not something that i ever even thought of to be to be quite honest with you i i think that phil jackson though he was just a coach probably did have a lot of input on which guys were brought in which guys could be effective in his system and, and i would think that he would at least have spoken to michael jordan his best player about some of the thoughts that that he had related to that you know but obviously that was all in a different age so whatever conversations they did have probably wasn't as easily made public there was no twitter there was no you know guys going to the media and 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 talking about the kind of things that they wanted to see happen but i think that's a really interesting point tommy at least from from the perspective right and the and the perception um but for for me the reason why Jordan, so first of all, if you look at his whole story starting from high school and leaving the game and coming back and losing in the playoffs and then the very next year, you know, doing something that was the the most courageous team feat that the NBA has ever seen, you know, um, there's just so many things about Michael Jordan's story that could not have been written better. You know, I think I think 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if you tell your grand your grandchildren about this guy named Michael Jordan and you tell them his whole story, it will read like a fairy tale. People will not believe that this was something that actually happened. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> I totally agree. And then the the other thing I'll just quickly say about him too, Tommy, six and zero in the NBA Finals. <laughs> you know, it's like LeBron can win seven more titles, but he'll never have a better finals winning percentage than michael jordan right six and zero in the finals and then the two that he didn't get to it's like wait a minute if he if he never left could they have gone eight times in a row could they have won eight in a row it's difficult to imagine they could have but again that is something that goes with his legacy because it's a magnificent what if considering the two separate three-peats and and the six and zero record that jordan and those bulls did have I was talking to an NBA executive literally the other day about this, and the question is, have you ever seen anybody like LeBron? Like, what, like, what is it about LeBron that, you know, you don't think he'll ever be able to get past Jordan? And I said, it, it's, it's not about LeBron on the court, right? Jordan never had, never played in a game seven. And you're talking about, like, those teams that he played against. Right? The Jazz were tremendous. Yeah. Okay, you want to tell me Magic was on the other side, the the Blazers weren't great? Fine. Okay, you give that. The Suns were a really, really good team. Right? Barkley stretched four. KJ was really good. Fine. The Bulls were better. Get it. Their Bulls were... you're saying you're saying never a game seven in the finals. Correct. Got it. Okay. 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 And that's and that's where I, that's that's differentiator for me. And listen, off the court stuff, I can get past. I'm not going to harp on it. Um, you know, in my mind, I'll be stubborn. I, I I just believe, and it's not because he beat the Knicks like a drum. Jordan's will. You just can't quantify will. At the end of the day, and will is okay. I'm gonna train myself all year long for for these. Two weeks, right? NBA Finals. I know I'm getting there. There's no doubt about it. And then I'm going to make sure that we, we close this thing out before it gets too serious. 
And that to me is great. That that to me is where Jordan, and I'll give it to LeBron last year. Obviously, we can, you know, agree, I would hope we can agree. Draymond Green, you know, sparked some sort of fire in within LeBron that took him to the next level. And and last year, without Kyrie, without Love, I was saying LeBron. Like I gained so much more respect for LeBron in that Finals that they lost. And obviously, then it, it it was even more so last year when they won after after Green um, kicked them uh, and and kind of reached uh, triggered this thing. But for me, Jordan's mindset day to day leading up to that vision, doing it six times uh, without a loss, without even a game seven. That that's that's pretty amazing. Which is never which never gets talked about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I think it's a it's a subliminal thing, and I think that's the reason why the aura of of Michael Jordan is so incredible. Because you know, before before Russell Westbrook started going crazy with his triple doubles, nobody ever even talked about the fact that Michael Jordan what what he has ten ten triple doubles in eleven games or something like that. <laughs> he could, yeah. Like, he no, could, no one he... ever no no one ever even talked about that. And uh, for context, you know, if I'm not mistaken. Doug Collins, I think, was what was his coach during during that year, yes. right? And he was actually playing Jordan as the team's point guard. Mm-hmm. So, how amazing is it that he was that productive as a point guard and then switched to shooting guard and became the greatest player ever thereafter? Like, and and, and, and that's the thing, thing about him is people don't even talk about these things. And, people and, don't even talk about it. And let me add to that. In addition to that, such an amazing point. And to that, he came back in '95. With a post game, he didn't have a po- he wasn't a post up player, you know. He, yeah. he he so he was under Phil Jackson in the triangle. He wasn't their first primary option uh, to to receive the ball. He had to bring the ball up and make that first end two pass. And so that all of a sudden everything kind of bounced off of that. Everybody knew he was going to be getting the ball late in the shot clock, which is why their pace was so slow because. He ultimately had to become a post player to get the ball at the end of you know the last six, seven, eight possession uh, seconds of the of the possession. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing point because when he when he came back, you know, he had the turnaround jump shot that that was developing, and he had the pinch post game, and everyone was just like, "Oh, okay, you know, this is this is something pretty new." And I was still pretty young at that time, Tommy. But you know, I've been watching basketball for a long time, and I, I remember that. And I remember his first game back against the Indiana Pacers. I, I think he maybe he what number forty five. <laughs> yeah, number forty-five. I think he was maybe seven for for twenty-one from the field, or seven for nineteen, or or something like that. He didn't shoot the ball particularly well, but I, I remember he was he was the talk of the town because everyone noticed that he was doing things a little differently. And I mean, obviously, being away from the game, you come back, you're probably going to look a little different. But it, great, great point brought up by you. So let's talk about uh, your feelings just quickly here. As we, uh, as I want to, I want to touch on the Knicks uh, for for one minute, and then we'll get into uh, your thoughts on the CBA. Um, your your feelings and thoughts have been written about at BasketballInsiders.com. You do a tremendous job. Thank you for jumping on with me at the at, at the uh, at the Garden at Center Court. There's nothing like that feeling, uh, especially with someone who you uh, who you have such a great um, friendship with. Um, they are in a. They're actually in a pretty decent spot, right? They're walking into aside from today because they're walking into Golden State, and you know it could be a, a very, very bad uh, <laughs> result, especially if Rose doesn't play uh, and and Melo isn't isn't one hundred percent with his legs. Um, 
But I wrote about this today with Nick's blog on Nick's blog. They have they have a quarterback controversy that no one's talking about in Rose and Jennings, two guys who um, are are on you know literally the last only one year deals, and they're they're playing for uh, you know for contracts going forward. They have a declining superstar. And they have an, a, a budding superstar. And they have a coach who's trying to figure it all out. Here they are, 14 and 11. You know, they won nine of their last 13. Um, you know, Joakim Noah, it, people will point to his contract. Um, his inner locker room presence is very, very important. Um, the Knicks, despite a lot of distractions, are actually not in a bad spot right now. No, I think you laid it out beautifully. You, you're exactly right. And it's funny, before the season began, you know, Brandon Jennings was actually on with our buddy Anthony Donahue. Um, they, you know, Donahue did a pretty good interview with Jennings. He did. And, yeah, and Jennings was basically saying, like, oh, you know, it's all about the team. You know, I just want to prove that, that I, I belong here and that I can help build a winning culture. And, you know, pretty much said all the right things, which is great. But what I told Anthony coming off that interview is I'm like, well, what else do you expect Jennings to say, right? You have to see how it actually looks on the floor because truth be told, a guy like that who's on a one-year deal that was a tremendous value for the team, that guy usually wants to showcase himself for free agency for the next year. And we already know that that's a part of what's motivating Derrick Rose. So what I told Anthony then, even before the season began, is I was like, the one concern I would have about those two guys is that they would not have the ability to put the the betterment of the team before them as individuals because they both have families to feed, they both have a lot to prove, and they both have big summers coming up where they want to get paid. So I think that that's a, a, a tremendous point that you bring up, Tommy, and then the whole Porzingis versus Carmelo thing. I think that's... I think that's something that's being driven more from the outside than it is from the inside. But it is something that Jeff Hornacek himself is going to have to deal with. Because if you look at the Phoenix game, he went without Carmelo for a long time. He did. But when he brought him back in, the offense seemed to immediately go back to being centered around him. And it's a game the Knicks ended up losing, especially with Porzingis having such a hot hand. You look at it in hindsight and say, you know what? Maybe he should have been riding Porzingis a little more down the stretch of that game. Maybe that would have been one that went into the win column. So as Porzingis improves and becomes more efficient, especially if Carmelo is is not improving on his shooting percentages, then it's 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 gonna it's gonna be something that just becomes louder and louder, even if it's coming mostly from the outside. You're gonna get me into the my my Scott Foster dislike and him fouling Porzingis out uh, after he makes the three. To get him up three, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, I, I want to, I, I, yeah, we'll keep it on, uh, uh, keep it to just speci- uh, specifically the team, although uh, that's obviously part of it. Um, I agree with that. I, I think that there's a lot to balance, and and balance is what Phil is all about, right? Like focus and balance, and and the message. He's not in there all every day. Having Noah in there and probably overpaying, I would say, I'm not going to argue that they spent a lot of money and probably overpaid for the on-court value for Noah, but the locker room Noah being the pipeline is probably not a good, uh, you, you don't want it to just be that way. You obviously want the, the pipeline to be through the coach, 
Um, but, but it just seems like that whole environment within the locker room is pretty peaceful. And at a time where, you know, there, there's, there's so many distractions, including, you know, what the media does. Yeah, no, Noah, you know, I think that there definitely are um, good, good, there, there are pros and cons to signing him, you know, and I don't, I don't know that anybody would argue that he's a good locker room guy, that he's a good team guy, and this and that. I think, I think the criticism that, that Phil is getting from the Noah acquisition was just the fact that he gave him a four-year deal. The fourth know, year you had I to think, do, yeah. I, I I hear you. You have to do that. Yeah, and then the worst part about it to get it done is that. Well, here, well, so, so I think most people think that a two-year deal with an option for a third would have been would have been totally fine. You but know, you like can't guarantee that, that wasn't four getting years. It, but that wasn't getting it done. Yeah, the, the, that fourth year, the guarantee of that year is what is why he's not in Washington or Minnesota. Well, well. well Perhaps, perhaps that's true. But again, I mean, like we we judge. So we're talking about Carmelo Anthony. What if he went to Detroit, right? Ten years ago, mm-hmm. fifteen years ago, whatever. The nature of this business is that we judge things in hindsight, right? It's like, okay, well, you made a decision. How did it end up working out in the long run? And thus far, I mean, the early returns on Noah, it, it's it, they haven't really been that promising. True. Obviously, it can turn around. You know, things can turn around, but to this point, it hasn't been very promising. I think that's where most of most of the criticism is, is coming from. I think if you're Noah, you go out tonight and you just, you know, you, you play with house money and you just go out and try to do. And if you're Hornacek with no rows, you probably run your offense through through Noah and you literally just let him get as many touches as possible and try to get him back to that MVP level. You know, and then you bring in Jennings off. Uh, well, Jennings will probably start, but you know. Bring in another guard, Sasha Vujicic, whoever, um, but but feature Noah in a game that you probably aren't going to win anyway. Let him go out there and try to play his best. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not a bad idea. The only the question about it and the concern that I would have with that is like, okay, well, is Noah not producing because he's not getting opportunity and reps? Or is he not producing because physically he's shot? <laughs> because if he's shot <laughs> physically, then giving him more minutes is only going to hurt. What do you it's think? Hurt him more. What do you think? Uh, I, I want to say from what I've seen thus far, I think it's more that he that physically he's just no longer capable, and it, it saddens me to say that. But really? Yeah. It, I mean, he he just hasn't. So so where Carmelo is now, right? Carmelo was born in '84. So Carmelo is going to be 33 years old in in May, right? When guys and, and we're kind of seeing the same thing. So Carmelo is still going to hit a big shot for you every now and then, but when guys that's that's how you know you're closer to the end. A guy like LeBron, we both know, guy, we both been 33. <laughs> it's like when you're 29, you can be great every single night. When you're 30, 31, you can probably be great six out of seven nights, right? When you're 32, 33, that's when you see guys start being great two or three out of every seven nights, you know? And and that's my fear with Noah is that, you know, the season is not that young anymore. We've played about 25% of the season. And how many how many times have we seen Noah be great? You can count You can count on one hand. And at that point, it's, it starts to make me a little nervous where I say, okay, I'm, I'm beginning to think this is less about rust 
and more it's less about rust and it's more about capability right and when you compare that with derrick rose i mean how many great games have you seen from derrick rose already it gives you the opposite thought where you say okay for him it's not about the fact that he's no longer capable it's about the fact that he's been busting off the rust and we've seen evidence of that noah noah really hasn't give us given us any reason to be as optimistic about him what i what i like or the optimism that i have for noah and i agree with you that his his best years are behind him there's no question about that what i love about noah is that cerebrally he knows the game and he knows how to fit a role like he's not just in the league to score and he's he's not just in the league to rebound but you know what he can do he could pass and passers are always welcome especially big guys who could pass so if you're out there he sees the floor he still sees the floor too Passing and seeing the floor, they kind of go hand in hand. But he sees the floor very well still as well. When he has the ball in his hands, you're, you you feel confident. It did, I, the other night he made a couple of mistakes late, which which really hurt. Um, Ron Baker did too, and, and that we could talk about that another time. But I, I, he he really, when the ball is in his hands, is comfortable in pressure situations. And it, you know that plus the locker room stuff increases his value. Does it get to 70, 17 million dollars or seventy two? Over the course of four years, um, maybe, maybe not. You know that remains to be seen. I'm not. I'm not ready to close the door there. Um, before I let you go, I definitely want to talk about the CBA and your thoughts on the tentative agreement. We've talked about this over the years. First and foremost, the difference between this tentative agreement and the last episode is extraordinary. The difference is is uh, just it, it goes to show you. Um, there's a lot of smart people that work at the NBA. I remember when the TV deal was signed. I want to say 90% of guys in the media. So, you know, everyone knows everything, right? Everybody is smarter than everybody else. Like, I remember... <laughs> after I remember, the fact. After the fact, for sure. <laughs> I remember with the whole Jeremy Lin situation, when the Knicks had to go to arbitration to figure out what his bird right situation was. I remember everybody was sure that the Knicks were going to lose and that they were going to be determined to not have Lynn's bird rights. And I was one of the people out there. What was that, Tom? And Novak. Yeah, yeah, Novak too, yep. I was one of the few people out there that said, you know what, I think they have a shot. I think they have a shot at winning this thing if you look at the spirit of the rule. I was one of the few people out there that had that thought. I remember. Similarly, when the TV deal was announced, 90% 90% of the media guys were sure that another lockout was coming. I was one of the few guys out there that said, there's not going to be another lockout. These guys are going to figure this thing out. There's too much money here, number one. But also, with Michelle Roberts and Adam Silver having taken over a league that is thriving and doing well, they do not want their legacy to be that the very first time they sat at the table across from one another that they couldn't figure this thing out. Not from first. the very beginning yep. from the very beginning, I was very confident that a new deal would be reached. And I'm not surprised in the least that lo and behold, here we are on December fifteenth, it has been announced that there is a tentative agreement and that there will be basketball without interruption. And that's great for the fans and it's great for the thousands of people that work around the league. That's why you're my guy. We'll get into it more uh, on another podcast. I know you've got to run. Uh, really appreciate the time um, and, and your expertise in 
uh, not only uh, covering the game as a whole uh, and locally as well with the Knicks, uh, but also on the CBA level, uh, is is incredibly well received here uh, and to all the people who follow me. So so thank you for that, um, and thanks for being a great friend. Hey, it's my absolute pleasure, man, and thanks a lot for having me. Always, always nice chatting with you, Tom. Look forward to catching you uh, next time. Follow him at Moke Hamilton, M-O-K-E-H-A-M-I-L. T- uh, T-O-N did I get that right <laughs> <laughs> you, you got it right buddy <laughs> uh, always a pleasure my friend happy holidays and look forward to catching you real soon likewise